1 Peter 3 and the 12th verse to begin with. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear." Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be sown, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water." The like figure whereon to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Amen. We know the Lord Himself will add His blessing onto the reading of His Word in our hearing tonight. I'll ask your brother, Mr. Bannatyne, to come along and to make the necessary announcements now, please. Well, we do welcome you all this evening. We do pray God's blessing upon you. And those that are visiting with us, we do welcome you especially in the Savior's precious name. Now, do remember, please, the children's meeting is going on. Do keep it in your prayers and remember our minister as he preaches the Word of God tonight. Children's meetings, the reach, and will be on tomorrow night, quarter to 7 to 7.30 approximately. That's in the Jubilee Hall. And then on Tuesday night at Sandy Row, 6.45 also to about 7.30. So please do keep those meetings in prayer. Tuesday, the outreach, God willing, and weather permitting at 10 a.m. Wednesday, Bible study and prayer time at 8 o'clock, and all are most welcome. Dr. Brown, the will of God, will take that. Parents and toddlers, 10.30 to noon on Thursday. There will be a committee and session meeting this Thursday at 7.30 p.m. And there will be a session meeting tonight after this evening service. It will be right after the evening service, please. It will be a short meeting, brethren, but please do attend that meeting. <clears throat> Friday, the Young People's Fellowship, and our brother Andrew Dunn will be speaking at the Young People's Fellowship. Men's prayer meeting at 9 p.m. Now, there will be a bi-monthly meeting, the Youth Council uh, meeting on Saturday, this Saturday, 26th of November, and that's at 7.30, and the topic is abortion. That's what they'll be speaking on. 
carol service, 7.30 p.m. in Coltra, the 7th of December. Now, um, if you would like to go to that, you're most welcome. We will have a minibus or so leaving the church here to take us down there too, with those that want to go that way. So please, if you want a ticket, there are tickets. Do see our brother Peter Lund tonight. Peter's the man in the organ. And do see him and he will give you a ticket. And do remember also the Martyr's Dinner, quarter to eight, on Friday the 16th of December. Now, for our own people, our own congregation, and those who attend here, there will be tickets on a very, very good price at £5.00. Committee in session agreed to do this to encourage our own people and to, so that they'll come along and have a four course meal for that. Now, you'll not beat that. So please do see uh, Brother Peter, Tom Ennis, Stephen Cummings, or myself for tickets. And again, it's for those who attend here too, not necessarily members. <clears throat> and for those who are here or aren't a member at all, only maybe a visiting, if you want to come, you'll still get it a little bit cheaper. The price is £23. That's what we will be charged. But for anyone else, we'll give it to you for 20. So there you are. There's another bargain. Do remember the sick, please. Mrs. Sheeran, maybe not known to many of you. She hasn't been well for quite a while, but she's now in Ulster Hospital. Do remember her and then her sister Phyllis in the RVH. Do remember them in prayer. The young sister Ruth, William Beatty, Tina, Stanley and Vera Manis, and Donna, Harry and Jim and Rebecca. And then do remember those recently bereaved, Rachel and Jim Blevins, and Mr. and Mrs. McElveen. Finally, just could I remind you, please, with the offering baskets on the wo- boxes on the walls for the Lord's work here. Do please feel free to give as you please. Thank you indeed. <clears throat> I'd like to thank our brother for making those announcements and all made subject, of course, to the will and to the approval of the Lord. Uh, Let me again, as I did this morning, uh, further promote uh, that carol service in Coltraw. I know a number of tickets went this morning. They are free. We just need to know the number of people that might be coming to attend because we can't go over capacity. Uh, So whenever the final ticket in terms of, right, we're up to our full numbers, whenever that final ticket has been given out, uh, then we'll have to stop advertising and giving tickets. So as has been said, do see Peter after the service tonight regarding that. It'll be helpful if somebody else at the other door could be giving out tickets also, if that can be arranged as well. On the Lord's Day evening, the 11th of December, there will be another carol service, and the children will be contributing on that night. That'll be the children from both Sunday schools, the Monday night children's meeting, and also the Tuesday night children's meeting. Uh, They'll be funneling into that carol service on the 11th of December at 6.30. And then on the 18th, we'll have our regular church carol service. I'm sure we'll not be sung out by then. You only really get to sing a sequence of these hymns uh, once a year. And so we'll be doing that on the 18th of December as well. We're looking forward to these and the cultural one. If you want to dress, it's not obligatory that you dress up in old-time gear, but if you're up for the challenge, I'm certainly up for the challenge. We trust a whole lot of people will be up for the challenge, and we will do what we've done on a previous occasion there. So we're looking forward to that already, and we trust we'll have a very enjoyable night on that occasion. 
Turning in the Word of God back to the passage that we have read already in service tonight, and that's 1 Peter and the chapter 3. 1 Peter, the chapter 3, and we're under the title, The Lonely Hill of Golgotham. We're looking down to the verse 18. 1 Peter, and the chapter 3, and the verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. With the Word of God open before us, we'll bow together, please, in a further word of prayer. Our gracious Father, again, we bow before the footstool of Thy mercy, because we know that's what we need. We do require that Thou in mercy will look upon us. We pray, Lord, that through the great lens of thy grace, that thou wilt see us. We know that we can only be accepted to God if we are looked upon through the merit and by the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we have no right to approach the thrice holy God of heaven. But we thank thee for Christ. We praise Thee for the Savior of sinners. We thank Thee for the one who bore our penalty on that central cross, who rose again from the dead the third day as He had promised He would, as the Old Testament Scriptures had predicted and prophesied He would. And Lord, we thank Thee for all of those prophecies that were fulfilled in the Savior's life, in His death, in His resurrection, and the ones that are still to be fulfilled regarding His second coming, and given the fact all of these others have been fulfilled, we're confident every last prophecy regarding Him, it shall come into place, even as He said it would. Put thy touch upon those who were ill tonight, those carrying heavy burdens. May they know much of thy mercy and thy help, we pray in Jesus' name, and for God's eternal glory. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ died when He was round about 33 years old. Apart from the fact that we derive from that that He died as a relatively young man, on the surface there seems nothing terribly unusual about that statement that He died at that particular age. The reason why it seems to be a pretty routine statement is because death comes to everybody. The Irish writer George Bernard Shaw completed a statistical study on the subject of death, and he said that he came to the firm conclusion, and you would come to the same conclusion as well, one out of one people dies normally. This is why biographers spend not so much time on the death of the subjects they're writing about. Chapter after chapter about maybe their birth, their background, their lives, their exploits during that lifetime, all the rest of it, and then maybe death is one chapter or a final couple of pages on the ultimate chapter, and that is it. But when we come to the Lord Jesus, that rule, if it is a rule, is broken. 
because about one-third of the gospel records are devoted not to the Savior's life, but to his death. Two-thirds, of course, to his life, one-third to his death. Our Lord was totally different in his birth from every other human being because he alone was born of a virgin. He was different as well, totally different in his life from every other human being because he was completely sinless. And I want to stress the point right now that Jesus Christ our Lord was totally different in his death from every other human being in this respect. Every other human being ever born was born to live. But our Lord Jesus Christ was born to die. I have this, this is what he said, this baptism to be baptized with. That was the baptism of the Calvary of the cross. And how am I straightened until it be accomplished? He was born to die. Great preacher, Dr. R.G. Lee, put it like this. His death, prearranged, prophesied, and provided by God, was no afterthought. Jesus was born with the shadow of the cross upon him, with the shadow of the cross upon his heart. He learned to walk. He learned to talk. He learned to work. From his earliest moment upon this earth, it was his burden by day, his pallet by night. So one hymn writer said he left the splendor of heaven, knowing his destiny towards that lonely hill of Golgotha, there to suffer and die for me. So normally people are remembered for something they accomplished during their lifetime. For example, when you think of George Washington, immediately you think, ah, he was the first president of the United States of America, or Benjamin Franklin, if he's named, then you'll be thinking, yes, he was the man that discovered electricity, maybe Thomas Edison, and the light bulb will come to mind when you think of that name, or Charles Haddon Spurgeon, how he illuminated in a different way London with his preaching at the end of the 19th century, and how he became head and shoulders above all the preachers in his generation, Winston Churchill in the view of many people, the greatest ever British Prime Minister, or when you think of Neil Armstrong, the man who was the first to set his foot upon the moon, or Sir Edmund Hillary, ah, that was the fellow that first climbed and conquered Mount Everest. And so we have these people, and because of things they did in their lifetime, then they are remembered today. But the most significant thing in terms of what the Bible is teaching, the most significant thing our Lord Jesus ever did was to die. 2,000 years after he has left this earth physically. It's not so much a cradle that we remind ourselves about concerning him. Not the whirling of a crown that comes immediately to our mind, but it is our Lord and his cross. That is God's neon flashing sign that tells you and me, if we are going to know him, the Lord Jesus Christ, we must know him in his vicarious death. We must come to know, to understand what his death is all about. Now in half 
of our text tonight in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. We find that our attention here is drawn to a simple, a straightforward, and yet a practically exhaustive set of teachings on the death of Jesus Christ. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And here we have three crucial truths about our Savior's death. Number one, his death was a sacrifice for sin. It was a sacrifice for sin. What do we read right at the beginning of 1 Peter 3 and the verse 18? These words, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Well, why do I call it a sacrificial death? Because I find that term popping up in Hebrews 9 and the verse 26. Now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And here's the thing, you will never understand the death of Jesus Christ until you understand it in light of its relationship to sin. We all know death is universal. Death is inevitable. Death is inescapable. Medicine, the best of medicine can only, well it can't prevent it, it can only postpone it. And it can maybe prolong a life for a week or two or a month or two or a year or two. And maybe someone is given a certain time in which they are expected to expire and they go longer than that because medicine keeps their body functioning further, maybe even than people expected. But everybody, everybody at one stage or other will succumb to death. Everybody will ask the question too, whether we act with bravado and say, well, those thoughts never enter my mind. They do enter our mind. They'll ask the question, is there life after death? I will never be asking the question, is there death after life? Because we know that answer is plain and clear. Of course there is death after life. We live and then we, we die. We know the answer to that question. But Jesus Christ's death was different of any and every other death that has ever occurred, and it was different because of its cause. Basically, there are four ways of dying. There's execution, that's whether it's lawful or unlawful, and some can be questioned. There is death by suicide, there is accidental death, and there is most commonly what we call death by natural causes. Now, what those do is explain the how, how death happened. They do not explain the why of death. And we are told plainly in the Word of God that people die. Why? Because of, here's the reason why, because of their sin. The first Adam wasn't born to die. He was born to live. He was morally, spiritually perfect. He was created in the image of God. He was made to worship God. He had a heart after God. He was made in righteousness and holiness. Death wasn't in the picture. It wasn't even on the horizon for Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. They will enjoy the paradise of God. But God made one thing plain to Adam. He said, 
In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And that was the first time the first man heard that word, die. And of course, as you read on in the Word of God, you'll find over 1,000 references to death in God's Word. And we know the sequel, how Adam and Eve did eat, and they did die. They died immediately in their spirit, having consumed that food that was off limits, and they died ultimately in their body. From the moment they sinned, their bodies became subject to disease and decay and deterioration and to death. Their spiritual death, though it was immediate, and their physical death, it was now inevitable. It be known that ever since every human being who has lived on the face of this earth, following after Adam, following after Eve, every human being every bo- ever born has died. Now the reason that that happened to Adam and happens to us is because what happened in Adam happens in us as well. Adam became a sinner. You and I were born that way. And we can't say, well, you know, it's hardly fair that I'm given the load of Adam's guilt. His punishment, little doubt, put to my account. I never knew Adam. I'm generation after generation after generation separated from him. How can I have any connection? Well, we do. He was our federal head, but we'll not go into that theology tonight. The fact of the matter is, even if you took Adam out of the equation and took your own person tonight, we all fit in to Romans 5 and 12. Death passed upon all men. Why? For that all, you and me and everybody else, All have sinned. And here's the rule that can't be broken. All who sin die. The Bible tells us again and again that that is a fact. Romans 3 and 23, we'll know that verse. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel 18, verse 4 and verse 20 as well. In Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. Death is God's righteous, inescapable punishment for human sin. But this raises a question. If death is God's righteous, inescapable punishment for sin, if that's why death and only why death occurs, then we have a problem here. Jesus was sinless. And if sin is the only cause of death, he then should not have died. Yet Jesus did die. He should not have died because he was innocent of any crime. He need not have died because he was innocent, not guilty of any sin. And yet he was mocked and he was flogged and he was stripped and he was tortured and he was kneeled to a cross and he was left to hang there until he was dead. But why? Well, there really are two answers to that question we're going to be given tonight, and they come under the two V's. Two V's as an answer to why Jesus died. First of all, he died a voluntary death. A voluntary death. As a matter of fact, did you know 
that the death of Jesus Christ is the only voluntary death in the history of the world? Oh, you might start arguing and say, well, I think you've got that wrong, actually, because what about a soldier on the battlefield giving his life and rescuing other people or standing in place of somebody else killed in war? What about that? What about people who choose themselves that they're going to die? Well, the fact of the matter is, while some may choose to die sooner rather than later, nobody chooses the weather of death. The Bible tells me and tells you in Hebrews 9 and 27, it is appointed unto man once to die. Death is not an option. Death is not a process of negotiation. We shall die. No question about that. The last item on the agenda of every life is death. Somebody has put it like this. All the world is a hospital. And every person in it is a terminal patient. The only human being who voluntarily chose to die, who didn't have to die, was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that's why our Lord emphasizes in John 10, verse 17 and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. In the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 8, we're told there is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death. And that's exactly right. Whenever it's time for you to die, you're going to give up your spirit whether you want to or don't want to. It's God in control, not you. But the Bible says in Matthew 27, the verse 50, that our Lord Jesus Christ yielded up the ghost. He died voluntarily for our sins. That's why I describe it as a sacrificial death. A chaplain was going around speaking to soldiers who'd all been wounded in battle. And he came across a soldier who was missing his right arm. And he tried to comfort him and he said, Son, I just want you to know that you lost your arm fighting in a great cause. The soldier looked up at the chaplain and he says, Chaplain, you're wrong. I didn't lose my arm. I gave it. Jesus gave, gave, gave his life. He died a sacrificial death for sin. His death was a sacrifice for sin. But then secondly, his death was a substitutionary death for sinners. A substitutionary death for sinners. Because Peter goes on to say in our text here tonight, in 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust. Somebody here, the just, which is Jesus, is taking the place of some other people. 
who were the unjust. For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. I want you to think about something that will make perfectly good sense to you. If sin is the only cause of death, and yet Jesus Christ had no sin, there then can only be one real cause of His death, and that is somebody else's sin. Our sin. If death results from sin, and our Lord Jesus never sinned, the only explanation for His death is He died on the behalf of sinners, and He died in their please. Make it personal. He died in my place. But this is denied by infidels, by heretics, by liberal theologians, fellows who are, and girls as well today, who are within the body of the church, as elasticated as a term as you could make that the church, who shouldn't be in the church because they deny fundamental truths in the Word of God. How can you be a preacher of the book? And yet you're cherry-picking your way through it, believing some and not believing others, taking cardinal doctrines and tossing them out. You shouldn't be proclaiming God's Word if that's what you're doing. The heretical president of a Baptist college in Tennessee in America said, the presence of Jesus is not an event that reconciles God to people. Atonement, he says, is not something God has done for us in the sense that God has made Jesus take our place so that the books would be balanced. Jesus doesn't come to pay off the heavy penalties for our sin. Jesus did not have to die. Jesus did not die to satisfy some abstract penalty for sin. Jesus died because people chose to kill him. If you hear that teaching, you're listening to heresy. This is nothing short of damnable heresy. And if that is what a man or a woman really believes, according to the New Testament, then he cannot and she cannot be a Christian. Let me shock you with another statement made by the late Bishop G. Bromley Oxnam, president of the World Council of Churches, which is why, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, why our church will never be a part of the World Council of Churches, a whole compromise body, this bishop said, I would rather go to hell than go to heaven on the back of another man. Let me be clear, crystal clear. Say something firmly and unequivocally. If you do not go to heaven on the back of Jesus, you are certainly going to hell. There is no negotiating around that. The Bible is fundamentally plain. Jesus, the sinner's friend, we sing, we hide ourselves in Thee. God looks upon Thy sprinkled blood. It's our only plea. Thou hast fulfilled the law, and we are justified. Ours is the blessing, thine the curse. We live, why? For thou hast died. I like the way a preacher put it. Not a heretic. The essence of salvation 
is God substituting himself for man. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. The great evangelist D.L. Moody was talking to somebody who was trying to deny the substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Moody said, do you suppose that God has made a law without a penalty? What an absurd thing that would be. And isn't it? What's the point in putting up speed limits if you don't have to pay any attention to them? What's the point having a stop sign at the end of the road if you can just drive on? Think of the chaos. Moody, you suppose God has made a law without a penalty? What an absurd thing it would be. The penalty for sin is death, for the soul that sins shall die. If I have sinned, I must die. Or get somebody to die for me. If the Bible doesn't teach that, it doesn't teach anything. And that is where the atonement of Jesus Christ comes in. And I've studied the Bible diligently and consistently. And the atoning work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, his substitutionary death, is one of the clearest truths that I can find in this book. And that's where the second V comes in. Thy carries. He died instead of me. Paul believed in that. Because he said in Romans 5 and 8, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, Paul is writing, He hath made him, that is God the Father, made God the Son, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange is happening there. 1 Thessalonians 5, the verse 9 to 10, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Paul taught that. Not only Paul. We've seen already that Peter believed in that, and our text tonight is ample proof of that. But here's another verse that Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2 and 24, who his own self, Jesus Christ, bare our sins in his own body on the tree. John, another apostle, believed in it as well. And so in 1 John 3, in verse 16, he writes, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And not only these New Testament men, but when I leaf away back into the Old Testament and come to a time period 700 years before our Lord Jesus Christ ever came as a babe to Bethlehem, I find Isaiah is writing. And what does he write in Isaiah 53, the verse 5 and the verse 6? He's declaring, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With the stripes we are healed. All be like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You notice I referred to his death not only as voluntary, but the second V, vicarious, comes from the word vicar. 
an English term for minister, of course. I remember turning up on a doorstep of high-rise flats in Liverpool 30-odd years ago, still in college, just completed first year. Ended up taking a funeral the first uh, number of days I was there, and as soon as I appeared at the door with, you know, a collar on that was ill-fitting, I'd never worn it before until that particular week, and they just ran into the house saying that the vicar had appeared and was there. Vicar, it means, the root word, substitute, to take the place of another. That's exactly what our Lord did. I'm reminded of a little old lady who wasn't that theologically switched on. Educationally illiterate, would have been at the bottom of a class right now, but she had a passionate love for the Lord Jesus and for the Word of God. And an unbeliever asked her on one occasion, can you even tell me what it feels like to be saved? She thought for a moment, and then she came through with this. Well, it feels to me as if the Lord stood in my shoes, and now I'm standing in His. His death was a sacrifice for sin. His death was a substitutionary death for sinners. And our final point tonight, it was, and this is vital, it was a sufficient death for salvation. It was a sufficient death for salvation. In other words, our Lord went out and accomplished what He had intended to do. For Christ, here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3 and the verse 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Why was He doing it? That, that He might bring us to God. It's sufficient for salvation. He died, made atonement, with the purpose of bringing us back to a right relationship with the God who created us. Well, why do we need to be brought back to God? God is not only a God of love. He is also, and this is pretty unpopular to teach, and many people leave it out. And they find it unpleasant to hear. And they don't want to offend people's ears by proclaiming it. The fact remains that God is not only a God of love. He is a God of justice. A God of wrath. So it's not popular, but it is necessary. In fact, the Bible scholar A.W. Pink says that in the Bible there are more references to the anger, the fury, the wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. That doesn't sound very loving. That is extremely loving because it's a voice of warning that tells you and me you're not right with God and you need to turn in repentance and faith to Him. I'm told in Psalm 7, the verse 11, God is angry with the wicked every day. But why is He angry? The Bible goes on to say in Romans 1, in the verse 18, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, does that mean that God is looking down on us and he's kind of throwing a kind of a temper tantrum up in heaven as he sees us? No. And here's the frightening thing. When you get a father who is angry at what a son or daughter's done, and they just don't explode into a rage and clear everything in front of them, but they sit and they methodically work things out, and they think what would be a proper and a just punishment for what has just happened, and then they act because they know punishment has to be administered. Then they act, having considered it calculatedly, coolly. That is more frightening than someone swinging around in wild abandon. Because then when they're doing that, you might think, well, that's not a proper or a fair reaction. But when God acts, He acts properly righteous. It's a holy reaction against sin, and that, I say, is what makes it even more frightening because it's balanced and it's measured out. We are getting what we definitely deserve. And that helps us understand clearly what happened on the cross. I can still remember sitting in science class and then going outside, and the teacher treeps all of the class out, and he, it's an autumn day, but there's good sunshine, and he shows us the power of a magnifying glass, and he takes a small pile of leaves, and he holds the glass at the right distance to form a tiny circle, brilliant light on the pile of leaves, and in a few moments it begins to smoke, and then it bursts into flames, and somehow that glass lens was able to gather all the heat that was there in the rays of sunlight striking its surface, and direct that combined sizzling intensity to one spot on those leaves. Picture the world. A globe covered with billions of people. And above it, like rays from the sun, comes the blinding intensity and the searing heat of the righteous judgment and the wrath of God, and it's bearing down upon the human race. And then imagine this great cosmic magnifying glass as wide as the world placed in between, the world of sinners for whom he died, and it's gathering all of that intensity of burning wrath, and it's focusing that light on one spot on one individual, in one place, on the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is kneeled to that cross in Calvary, for our Lord Jesus becomes the focal point of God's wrath, the wrath of God that was our Jew. Upon that lamb was laid, and by the shedding of his blood, the debt for me was paid. And when the Son of God is crucified, the wrath of God is satisfied. That's why I read in Romans 8 and verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ 
Jesus, Paul's, or Peter's putting it this way in 1 Peter 3 and 18, the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Because the just died for the unjust, the unjust now becomes just. God's law makes a double demand upon man. As saints, we must obey it perfectly, but as sinners, we must pay its penalty. Mankind cannot do either, but Jesus Christ has done both. In certain parts of the world, a merchant, he sells goods and they're displayed on a counter or a table, and you look there, what's the price? There is no price tag. Not a sign or sign of a price tag. No price tags are attached to any of the goods. And when somebody comes up and they want to buy an item, that person lays down some money. And if the merchant isn't satisfied with the payment, then he just leaves it lying on the table. But when the person wishing to buy the item adds more money or even more money, when enough is put down to satisfy the merchant, this is a good deal, a fair deal, both of us are happy here, he reaches down and he takes it up and he hands the item over to the person purchasing. He's saying, in essence, I'm now satisfied with the payment. Isaiah said about the Lord Jesus, Isaiah 53 and verse 11, he shall see the travail of a soul and shall be satisfied. So what's the bottom line in all of this? The Lord Jesus took on that cross at Calvary what you and I would have to take for all eternity if we don't embrace him as he's freely offered to us in the gospel. And if you're going, we're back to where we began, if you're going to really know Jesus Christ, you must know him in his vicarious death. He died. An initial death as the Lamb of God slain as far as the mind and the purpose and the planning of God was concerned from the foundation of the world. This was always going to be the case. He died an official death as our substitute. God selected man in our place. He died a judicial death for he paid the penalty of our sin. He was under wrath for others. He died a sacrificial death, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. It said that one time Napoleon, I guess you could describe him an archangel of war. He's in a conference room with some of his generals. They're discussing the situation in the world, the campaigns that they have already launched and the ones that he planned to launch. And they're thinking about the conquest of the great Napoleon, how no nation hardly was standing before him. And on the map that day in the conference room, there's a, on the wall that day, there's a map of the world and the British Isles, the one country Napoleon couldn't conquer. That British Isles was painted in red and Napoleon pointed to the British Isles and he said, had it not been for that red spot, I would have conquered the world. What tell you tonight? Satan is compelled to point to Calvary, to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and say, Had it not been for that red spot, I would have conquered the world. But he didn't, nor will he, because of the blessed cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I close with the words of the poet, Prince of life, for us thou livest, 
By thy body souls are healed, Prince of life, thy peace thou givest. By thy blood is pardon sealed. Hallelujah. Word of God in flesh revealed. Paschal Lamb, thine offering finished once for all. When thou wast slain in its fullness undiminished, shall forevermore remain. Hallelujah. Cleansing souls from every stain.